If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you were to go online or perhaps even dare to enter into a conversation face-to-face with someone at a local coffee shop or one of your neighbors and you began to ask them about who they thought Jesus was and, and what it was like for him to, uh, to be here on earth, you will likely to get all kinds of answers, most of them unfortunately wrong. This would be all the more likely if you asked them about Jesus' childhood what it was like for Jesus growing up, because there is uh, no end to the kind of speculation that people have made about what Jesus' childhood was like. And though we are given very little information about it, that speculation uh, has caused, or or that lack of information has caused speculation to, to be probably more than any other part of Jesus' life. For example, in the 400s A.D. in Arabia, there is an account about Jesus' Uh, childhood. It's about him being at a dyer shop. Uh, a dyer is one who would have dyed clothes uh, a certain color. You would have bought uh, white fabric, maybe white, maybe more like off-white, uh, a beige tone, and you would want it green. And so you would pay for him to mix up the green dye and to dye that, that, that cloth green or, or, or purple or blue or red or whatever it was. And there is uh, a story of Jesus going to this dyer shop and uh, looking around and, and taking all of the clothes and dropping them into the indigo dye, the deep blue staining dye from which there is no way to uh, clean the garments afterwards. And this man who owned this dyer shop, Salem, is furious with Jesus because he's ruined him. People have dropped all these clothes off expecting all these different colors, and Jesus has, has ruined them by dropping them all in the indigo. His, his business is, is going to fail. People will hate him. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. What, what colors do you want them? He begins pulling out a shirt out of the indigo dye, red, and another green, another yellow, and Salam is, is amazed and thankful that Jesus has done this for him. There's another story from a different source in the 200s A.D., and this is of Jesus as a young child uh, walking down the road, and he's been disciplined. He's been kind of um, not really, he's, he's kind of let his anger get away from him, and Joseph has kind of scolded him, and he's, he's kind of angry and, and, and frumpy. He's about five, and he's walking home, and this boy bumps into him, and Jesus is indignant and says, you shall not finish the direction that you're going, and the little boy falls down dead. And everybody marvels that anything that this boy Jesus says comes true. Uh, others will say that Jesus traveled to India to say that the, the teachings of Hindu and Hinduism. And the one thing that all these stories have in common is what they lack, namely the ring of truthfulness. In other words, uh, because all of these people are trying to, even as we prayed earlier, make Jesus either into their own image, this is what I would have done if I was the Messiah at that age, or come up with some kind of fanciful tale to make Jesus look really impressive, the problem is they go too far and it doesn't sound believable to us. It doesn't sound like something Jesus really would have done. And on that level alone, Luke's account seems all the more real to us. First of all, all those other sources come from so long ago, hundreds of years after Jesus lived. There are no eyewitnesses to give them reliable information. And suppose that the account had somehow been written down by an eyewitness, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John would surely have known about it and put it into their Gospels. And so on that basis, we can say there's no way those things are accurate or would have happened. But more than that, you can imagine Luke, if he is wanting to invent a story, 
he probably would have invented a story like that. But what we have is, frankly, boring in comparison. There's no miracles. There's no death. There's no great traveling around the world to study with Eastern philosophers. In fact, it is a pretty simple story. And yet, the story that is before us, the narrative account, the historical account of what happened in Jesus' life is amazing. Because Luke puts it here as evidence that Jesus is truly the Savior of the world. What could be more amazing than that? Our story opens with a transition from the last narrative that we saw last week. There, Mary and Joseph were in Jerusalem dedicating Jesus, offering sacrifices for his redemption and the purification of Mary. But they didn't stay away from Jerusalem. That wasn't the only time that they came to Jerusalem. In fact, Luke begins his account that we will look at today by telling us this in verse 39. When they have performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. If you picture these opening verses like a movie perhaps that would be directed today, you would have them at the first part at the edge of Jerusalem. You would have had Mary and Joseph cuddling this little infant Jesus with them, happy and marveling at all that was said and done that took place as they were simply coming up to do what the law required. And yet this man, this prophet came and uh, declared amazing things about Jesus and painful things that would come to Mary. And you would, the camera angle would, would kind of follow them as they began walking across uh, the desert to their hometown of Nazareth. And, and, and the dusty wind would blow up and they would kind of fade off into the distance. And then the dust would begin to to blow up again. And this time it was not just Mary and Joseph, but a whole caravan of people coming towards the city again. uh, again. Joseph would have been older, perhaps with some gray in his hair and in his beard. If he's like me, he would have had a lot of gray in his hair and in his beard. Mary would have grown up from being a teenager now to uh, a mature young woman with more than just a baby in her arms, though perhaps with a baby in her arms, probably several more children. And now Jesus not being carried, but a 12-year-old boy walking alongside them as they came into Jerusalem. From these events that will unfold over the next three days, Jesus will prove he is in some ways just like every other 12-year-old boy that has ever lived. But in other ways, he is nothing like any other 12-year boy that has ever lived. Luke shows us that Jesus reveals he knows that he is the Savior of the world. And so from uh, these verses and the ones that follow to the end of the chapter, we first see this. In seeking to understand Jesus as the Savior of the world, we see the fullness of Christ's humanity. We see the fullness of Christ's humanity. Luke begins and ends these these verses, this narrative, with a summarizing statement about Jesus. He begins by telling us when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. He ends the passage with a similar statement. Now, even in these two verses, there are several things going on, but more than anything, it speaks again to the fullness of Christ's humanity. And first we see this, he was physically human. He was physically human. Speaking of Jesus, Luke says that the child grew and became strong. 
Christians call this uh, event of Jesus' birth and his life the incarnation, which means the infleshing of God. We get this from John chapter 1 where the apostle says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later he says, And the Word became flesh, in flesh, incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible teaches that from the moment of Mary's virginal conception of Jesus, his divine nature and his human nature were forever united into one being. Those natures were not mixed into some kind of new hybrid being. They remained forever separate and distinct. Thus, Jesus was one person within whom was two natures. He was and is and will forever be God in the flesh, very God of very God and very man of very man. And here Luke reinforces that by reminding us that Jesus grew up. Jesus was like you. He was like me. He was like every other uh, child and baby in this building. We have, or they will, grow up into adulthood. He was flesh and blood just like every one of us. So you can imagine him. Maybe. Maybe not. But you can. It's okay. It's not wrong. You can imagine him learning to eat solid food, learning to crawl across the dusty roads of Nazareth. You can imagine his parents teaching him how to walk, standing him up as his muscles became strong and learned to hold his weight. And he, he understood to put his hands out to, to keep balance as he began uh, toddling across the floor like all of us have, falling and, and being scared and hurting ourselves and, and, and beginning to cry and his parents uh, kind of uh, uh, assuring him and setting back him, him back up and, and getting him to walk again. You can imagine him getting older and his parents teaching him to help with the chores around the house and perhaps even Joseph teaching him how to wield a hammer and use nails and plain wood as a carpenter. Jesus was, in that sense, like every other person who has ever lived. He was fully human. More than just being physically human, though, we also see that Jesus was intellectually human. Jesus was intellectually human. God says that Jesus grew and was filled with wisdom, verse 40. This means that Jesus grew in his mental ability. Now, this is probably something we, we would have more of a problem struggling to understand than, than the first point that we made. For Jesus to be human and to have a human body is almost intuitive for, for Christians. We just kind of accept it. But when we begin to think about the details and the processes of what that actually means, it can be hard to grasp, hard to understand, because we're being taken right into the very depths of not only the mystery of the Trinity, but of the nature of the incarnation itself. I used to have a philosophy professor. And he would say, as we're using examples, as we're thinking through philosophy and logic, he says the incarnation is off limits. Now, this is a Christian college. We're thinking, well, why is that? And he said, it's not because it's not important. It is. But it's so important and so unique, it becomes philosophically very messy. So we don't use it as an illustration. You aren't Christ. You aren't fully God and fully man. It doesn't work for you. So, so let's not think about that in this context. But here Luke is telling us we need to think about this. In this context, well, Jesus is God and therefore has the fullness of God's omniscience, that is, his all-knowingness. God knows all things, past, present, and future, potential and actual. 
Jesus is God, so he has that knowledge. Yet during the incarnation, during his time living as the Messiah on earth, he somehow limits his access to that knowledge. One of the clearest passages, and therefore one of the most important passages of the New Testament, is one that Pastor Richard preached on right after Christmas, Philippians 2. Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Again, in his humanity, Jesus was just like any other human child. So when he was two, he was not able to perform complex mathematical equations. When he was five, he didn't know the names, the birth dates, and the favorite foods of every Babylonian king who ever lived. When he was eight, he did not know the distance of every star from galactic center and the necessary speed it would take to arrive from center to that star in the course of an hour. He he didn't know those things. When he was ten, he was not able to walk down the village of Nazareth naming every, uh, every, every intentional and every accidental moral failing of every single person that he encountered. Now... Now the risen Christ knows those things. He has all knowledge and he exercises all knowledge, but not them. Not in the incarnation, in the fullness of his humanity. Jesus willingly laid aside that omniscience. He did not lose it, but he willfully said, I'm not going to access it as it were. It would be like having an external hard drive ported onto your computer with the knowledge of the universe. And Jesus says, I'm not going to open that drive. Now, again, philosophically, metaphysically, how does that work? I have no idea how that works. I'm not sure we're ever going to understand that because we're not God. But this is what the scriptures lead us to understand. In the fullness of his humanity, Jesus laid aside that omniscience. And though without hindrance from sin like us, his mind grew in knowledge and understanding of the world and the ways of God. That's what Luke is telling us. And as we think about the fullness of Christ's humanity in that way, that he was able to, to not just grow physically, but grow mentally and learn, please understand that it's important to grasp that not just so that we're orthodox, not just so that we have a right understanding of the Bible. That's important. Don't, don't hear me minimizing that. If God says, this is who I am, it's important that we believe that's who God is, that we trust God to tell us who he is and we believe it. That is important. But that's not the only reason why it's important to get this right. Because understanding rightly the humanity of Christ helps us to actually believe that he is the Savior. To, to trust him to be our savior, the one that we need to make us right with God. Remember what the gospel of Luke is all about. It is showing us this reality that Jesus is the savior of the world. That is, he is the one who saves us from the consequences of our sin. Ultimately, the Bible says, ultimately every sin is against God. Therefore, it is to God that we need to be reconciled. We we cannot do this on our own, though. We need a mediator, one who will stand between us and God to make us right. And Christ is that perfect mediator. And it's at this very reason that he is fully God and fully man, that he is the perfect mediator. He is fully divine, and therefore he is able to not only represent us to God, the only God, his Father, but fully meet God's standards. Moreover, he is fully human. He is able to represent us and to offer himself as a substitute on our behalf by bearing our punishment for us and earning righteousness for us that we might be made right with God. And as our Savior, Christ does even more. 
even after we trust him, even after we have fellowship with the Father, we still struggle. That's why every single week we have a time of confession of sin, because no one here has gone the week without sinning in some way. We have we've damaged then the fellowship that we have with God through Christ, and we need to, again, be, as it were, small r, reconciled to him. Just like I need to ask forgiveness from you if I offend you, so that we will be on good talking terms again. I would hope that that if I did something silly, like not return your movie when I said I would, that that would not end our relationship forever. But I I may have to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right? And can we, you know, are we okay? Are we, are we a simpatico? Well, it's so much more for God. Yes, we are his children. We've been adopted into his family. He has saved us from, from death now to life with him. But when we sin, it's like a slap in the face to him for all that he's done. So therefore we come humbly asking forgiveness. And when we, when we are tempted to doubt that, that God really understands how difficult our life is in this sinful world, that how severe temptation is, or perhaps that he's not going to understand, he, he, cannot, he cannot understand what it's like, and therefore he will not forgive us when we continually come asking forgiveness over and over again. Hebrews says, think of Christ. Remember your mediator. Remember your Savior. For he is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, with, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we encounter struggle in this life, Jesus is there as the one who understands. He says, I have been there. I have endured it. I know what it's like to face that temptation. Yes, the details are different, but the nature of the temptation is the same. And I overcame it. I understand your struggle. Therefore, when you come to find mercy, forgiveness, do not hesitate. I am willing to give. When you ask for grace to overcome the temptation and be holy, I am here and I am willing to give. Therefore, Jesus is the perfect Savior, not just in the past, but also in the present. He stands ready to help all who call on his name. We see Christ's humanity. We also see, secondly, Christ's humility. The example of Christ's humility. The example of Christ's humility. In verse 41, Jesus explains that Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now, this is the last time in the Gospels that we see Jesus and his parents all together. In fact, this is the last glimpse we have of Jesus before he is baptized and begins his ministry as the promised Messiah. And even here, Mary and Joseph are shown to be faithful followers of God. Specifically, Jesus saw in his parents a love for God's ways. He saw in them a love for God's ways. In the previous section, we saw no less than four times it was said of them that they did what was spoken in the word of God or according to the law. More than that, they had gone above and beyond what the law had required in their observance of it. Likewise, here Luke says in verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law in Jerusalem, they returned home. And now 12 years later, verse 40, we see that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So it's not as if They haven't been to Jerusalem in 12 years. No, it's an annual event. It was their custom to come every year for the Passover. Ever since Jesus was born, they had been coming. Now understand, you go back and you look at Exodus. The law only required one person from the family to be there. Joseph. That was it. 
That's all that God expected. And yet here, that's not what Jesus saw, is it? Jesus experienced year after year being bundled up and taken with his father and his mother and the rest of his family to go and to celebrate Passover. Remember what Passover was? It was the feast that celebrated Israel's salvation from slavery in Egypt. Every year they remembered that God's promise had come true, that he had promised to redeem them from captivity and the threat that went unheeded by Pharaoh. God told him, if you do not let my people go, I will send these plagues upon you. And he's like, let the plagues come. And the plagues came. And finally, Moses came and said, and said, Pharaoh, there is a plague more terrible than you can possibly fathom. The death of the firstborn across all of Egypt, human, animal, you name it, the firstborn will be dead. Pharaoh says, I don't care. You're not leaving. And so God tells his people, this is the way you will escape the plague of death. You will take a lamb and you will sacrifice it and you will put the blood on the doorpost as a sign of your faith in me. You will go into your home and you will eat of that roasted lamb. You will celebrate the salvation that will come in the morning in anticipation of the glory that is to come. Your deliverance, you will feast on that lamb amidst your family. And when you do this, when you trust me, and you give evidence of that by offering the sacrifice of, of, of displaying the blood and of rejoicing the salvation that is to come, when the angel of death comes, it will pass over your house and not bring the plague of destruction upon the firstborn. And that's exactly what happened. And now every year they were to get a lamb and they were to sacrifice it and they were to feast remembering year after year after year the redemption that God had brought when he first made them his people Israel. And year after year Jesus would have sat at the feet of his father Joseph hearing again the story of God's salvation, eating the lamb, learning to put his confidence in God. Year after year, he would have saw his mother willingly make the long journey to Jerusalem with her husband, singing the hymns of Israel's faith, joyfully displaying faith in God. Now, what does all this have to do with Jesus' humility? Consider this. Whatever godliness of character Jesus had, and he had it in spades, that godliness of character was not simply something his divine nature imparted to his human nature. Do you understand that? Jesus grew in and achieved actual righteousness as a perfect man that it might be imparted to imperfect people like us. Therefore, it was the Spirit of God operating in his life through the Word of God as a means of grace to grow and to build Jesus into the godly man that he was. And one of the ways that Jesus grew to be humbly dependent upon God. You read through the rest of this gospel and you will see Jesus going off and praying and praying and praying. Why? You want a good chat? No. Because he knows he, he is not he is not accessing the omniscience, the omnipotence, the omnipresence. He's not accessing the full weight of glory that he has as the Son of God. Instead, he is humbly dependent upon his heavenly Father, calling out, I need you to give me wisdom. I need you to put your words in my mouth that I might teach. I need you to watch over me. I need you to ensure that this plan is going to come to fruition. 
that the Jews or the Romans do not kill me early, but I make it to the cross. And where did he learn that? In part from his parents. Now, now, now let me just burden us parents here this morning and say, if Jesus is learning humble, obedient, joyful faith in God from Mary and Joseph, how much more should they see it from us? How much more should they see in us the realities of the life of faith? Not just the bare minimum, but above and beyond anything that God would require. This godly humility is not only seen in the display of love for God's ways that Jesus saw in his parents. We also see it in Jesus' own hunger for God's word. A hunger for God's word. Luke says that one, one year while they were celebrating the Passover, verse 42, when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, the custom of the day meant the entire village would have traveled together to Jerusalem. Not only, not, not only made the, the, the travel and the voyage more enjoyable, but also safer, as bandits were less likely to attack a large group than one family. Thus, while we might be tempted to disparage Mary and Joseph for losing Jesus, no one in that day would have, would have found fault with them for what happened. After all, this, this, wasn't, this village wasn't that big. It's not like New York City or even all of Bay City going off on, on, on some voyage. Furthermore, this is the people they worked with. This is the people they loved. It's their friends. It's their, it's their relatives. Jesus would have had friends that he would have played with other children. It was no unusual thing for them to assume Jesus is leaving with us. He, he's with our family. He's with our friends. It's no big deal. But after traveling for the day, perhaps at night as the tents are beginning to be put up, as, as they are making camp before they, they continue on their journey, suddenly Jesus is nowhere to be found. And they know what they should do. In the morning, they've got to go back to Jerusalem. Now, can you just imagine for a minute what's going through their minds? I've been in this situation on both ends before. When I was young, I think less than 12, maybe 10, uh, I was at a Cub Scout uh, jamboree, which is where uh, scouting groups from uh, all over the area come. And there's thousands upon thousands of these Cub Scouts and their parents and booths all in this convention center. And there was this massive uh, blow-up castle. When I say massive, you know, I mean not just massive to a 10-year-old, but like massive, massive. Like this thing was huge. It had like six slides uh, all around this thing. And uh, they said there was about a 30-minute wait before you would actually be able to, to not only stand in line, but then climb to the top and then go down one of the slides. And so my mom says, I'll be waiting for you at the bottom. Have fun. So it did not take 30 minutes. It took about five minutes. Boom, they were moving that thing. And so I got down, and uh, there's no mom. Uh, Dad's at work, so it's just me and her, and I'm looking around, and I'm looking around. At first, I'm playing it cool. I know, well, she said she's going to be here. And so I'm looking around, I'm looking around, and it's just stranger after stranger after stranger for 20 strangers, for 50 strangers, for hundreds of strangers, and it's not long before panic sets in. If you've been lost, you know, you know what that kind of rising pit feels like in your stomach, panic. But even as a parent, I've, I've been in situations, sometimes I've been at a store, sometimes I've been in crowds, and suddenly a kid is, is not there. And there's a whole different level of terror that comes to that. 
in my opinion, being, being lost as a kid does not compare to being a parent with a lost kid. Because for a kid, the, the, the fears are vague. I'm not going to go home with, with, with mom and dad or something might happen to me. But as a parent, you know specifically what those fears are. You know what those dangers are. And so here is Mary and Joseph. Luke says it took them three days to find Jesus. Can you imagine that? Three minutes, and I'm, I've, I've lost 10 pounds from sweat. They're going to go three days. And there's one day traveling out of town, one day traveling back into town, and one day traveling around town looking for him. Luke says in verse 46, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, at home, I have some books of famous religious arts. I've seen galleries online, and one of the most famous religious paintings is of the scene of this very verse. And there's been lots of paintings about this verse, and almost every version, some modern ones actually read the text and get it right, but almost all of the Renaissance ones, they always show Jesus standing in the middle, and all of the teachers sitting down, just agape, as he's got his hands proclaimed, or if you ever see art, there's the, there's the two-finger thing that always shows that they're giving truth, and Jesus is the one teaching. That's not what Matthew what Luke says here, is it? Jesus is the one asking the questions. He's not the one giving the answers. He is sitting, the cultural position of the learner. He is listening to them, Luke says. He is asking questions. One day, Jesus will stand amidst the crowds, proclaiming the word of God, provoking questions in the crowd. But that's not this day. This day, he is 12, and he is humbly hungering to know more of God's word. As we said before, Jesus wasn't omniscient about the scriptures or anything else growing up. He was still learning. Nevertheless, he demonstrated a hunger, a passion to know the word. In fact, Luke says, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus didn't know everything, but he had developed wisdom beyond his years. He not only believed the promises of God, but was beginning to put them together in his mind to see the big picture of what God was doing in redeeming his, his people. He was making wise applications of the teaching of God's word to life. And that is what astonished his teachers in this young man. But let's just step back for a minute and think about the specifics of the story and the hunger of God's word in Christ. Where did Jesus sleep those two nights? What did Jesus eat those three days? Now, could somebody have taken him home? Maybe. Could could someone have taken pity on him and and given him food if he asked them for it? Quite possibly. The the, the Hebrews were not uh, an unkind people, particularly when it came to family and children. But the reality is the Scripture doesn't tell us, and I would not be surprised if Jesus simply slept outside of the temple gates and didn't bother with food for those three days. Because what we see as he grows up is this. His spiritual appetite far outpaces his physical appetite. Jesus specifically says he is far less concerned for physical food than he is the food, the joy, the satisfaction that comes when he does his Father's will. All this, I think, points us to the humility of Christ. In his earthly life, he was utterly dependent upon God and his word. That made him, even at 12, to want to know more of God and his word. So we see that picture and we have to ask, where do we stand? Are we like Christ, humble in our attitude towards God? Or have we got it all figured out? 
We have all of our theology down, know all about the Bible, and so we just leave it lying around like some out-of-date coupon that's not good for anything else anymore. Are we confident in our own abilities to navigate life and get things done? That somehow the wisdom of God is an afterthought to us on a daily basis? Or worse, it's something we've simply relegated to our weekends? That wasn't how Jesus lived. Perhaps today we need to confess our pride, our hubris, in the face of God asking him to give us a hunger for his word. We've seen Christ's humanity. We've seen Christ's humility. Finally, we see the certainty of Christ's deity. The certainty of Christ's deity. Jesus is in the temple. He's sitting among the teachers asking questions, learning, displaying a love for God's truth. When Mary and Joseph show up, verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. That didn't last long. The rest of the verse. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. What was Jesus certain of at this point in his life? A whole lot. First, he knew he had a divine father. He had a divine father. We can sympathize with Mary, can't we? At least I can. Fear gives way to confusion, which turns to anger. How many of us have grown up hearing, and perhaps we ourselves as parents have said something that began with the rebuke, your father and I, or your mother and I. We can understand how she felt this, not just because she's a mom, but of how she became a mom. An angel shows up to her one night. She's a young teenager. And he says, before you even are married and enjoy the blessings that come with that, you're going to conceive a child by the power of God. And he's not going to be any ordinary child. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High, even the Son of God. He will be the Messiah who takes the throne of his father David and rules over the land. How do you raise a Messiah? Well, one thing's for sure, you probably shouldn't lose him in Jerusalem. She's been told that the angel, by the angel, that he would be the son of the Most High, the son of God. But she's still completely oblivious when Jesus says, Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? But what she and Joseph are confused on, Jesus is not confused on. He has certainty. Think about how, what this must have been like for him. As Jesus is studying the scriptures, the Spirit of God is giving him understanding. He's seeing promise after promise after promise about this coming Redeemer. He saw the Lord back in Genesis right after the sin of our first parents when God promises a son who will defeat Satan. He sees it in Abraham when he's willing because he trusts God to bring him back to life. He's willing to sacrifice the son of promise. And God says, no, I will provide the lamb. He sees it in Moses' words to Israel that a prophet like him would come and lead and teach the people. He sees it in the longing of the Psalms and the prophets as they look forward to a Messiah who would come and save them from their enemies and bring them back to God in righteousness. He sees these promises grow throughout redemptive history, throughout the scriptures, from simply one who was a great leader to specifically one who was the son of David, born of a virgin in a town of Bethlehem. He sees the promise grow even further throughout the prophets so that now it's God himself who says he's coming, not just the Messiah. Is it God and the Messiah? No, he realizes. God is the Messiah. God will come taking on flesh, born of a woman under the law to redeem those under the law. And now he says, I am that Messiah. I am God's son and he is my father. For sure the idea of 
fatherhood of God in the, in the Bible wasn't a new thing. It's mentioned about a dozen times in the Old Testament. But it's never mentioned in the personal way that Jesus mentions it here. In the Old Testament, it's always in the plural. You'll find people talking about God, our Father, as a people. Even those like Moses and Elijah and David would never dare to say what Jesus says so calmly, so naturally, my Father. Such was the intimate terms of his address because he was certain of the intimate nature of his fellowship. He knew he was the Son of God. And because Jesus was certain that he had a divine Father, he was also certain about his divine purpose. About his divine purpose. Again, there's a temptation to read the text incorrectly, isn't there? To read it too quickly and arrive at a wrong assessment of the meaning. Perhaps you identify with Mary and Joseph here and wonder about Jesus' response. Is he being condescending? Is he being a smart mouth? And the answer is no. On either the parents' end or Jesus' end, there is no fault that is clearly put on anyone in the text. Here Jesus knows who he is. He may even know what his parents were told by the angel. And I think he is truly astonished. He is truly astonished that his parents have been looking for him and didn't know where he was. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? That's exactly where he should be. If God is his father and he is his son, then surely he would be about his father's business at his father's house, the temple. Jesus would have wanted to commune with the father, to grow an understanding of God's word. Why? Because he was preparing to serve the father's purpose. He was preparing to take up the ministry of the promised Messiah and bring salvation to the world. Nevertheless, he's been entrusted to earthly parents for his upbringing. Therefore, he obeys the word of God, his father, and he honors his parents just as he's commanded. Therefore, it's no surprise we read that Mary and Joseph did not understand the saying that he spoke. Nevertheless, Jesus went down with them and and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus did exactly as his human parents wanted because that was what his heavenly father wanted. It fulfilled the purpose of his preparation for being the Messiah. He was growing physically, mentally, and spiritually. That's what the last verse means. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This morning, Luke has presented to us a picture of Jesus maturing into the Savior of the world. And even at 12, we see a pattern that we should imitate, an example to follow. But Jesus is more than just an example. He is the Savior. It's interesting, isn't it, that in this, in this passage, the last, the last thing that we see of Jesus before he begins his ministry, he comes on the scene as the Messiah, is the Passover celebration. It'd be less than 20 years that Jesus would be in Jerusalem for another Passover celebration. And this time God would not pass over all the firstborn in Israel. This time Mary and Joseph's firstborn, their first son, God's own son, would not escape God's wrath, but would feel it in its fullness for us. Jesus would willingly go to the cross and offer up his life like a lamb to be slaughtered for the sins of his people. Jesus is the perfect Savior, one that saves us and brings us to God, one that we can trust in this life and the next, one that we should follow in faith as our Father, may that be true of all of us this morning. May we look to Christ and see the perfection of him as our Savior. God, may we throw ourselves at his feet. May we long to trust him, 
to make us right with you. And in doing so, God, may we seek to also follow his example. God, even at 12, he shamed so many of us by his desire to be with you in your presence, to be learning about you and to be growing into the perfect image that you would have him to be. Father, even as he is the promised Messiah for his people, God, you made promises about us, your people, about our growth and holiness and our love for you, your law, which is no longer something external to us, but is written in our hearts that we might love it and cherish it and do it. Father, we pray that you would continue to bring about those promises as we seek to dwell in your presence, going to your word, being filled with your spirit, that we might be changed into the pattern that Christ has set on the basis of the salvation that Christ has won. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.